Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. Hey everyone, this is episode 115 from Panoramic Outdoors and I'm Sheldon Grant. Today's episode is brought to us by Wool Love. Wool Love is a merino wool base layer that Panoramic Outdoors guys, uh, our ambassadors, and a lot of other outdoors people have been wearing for the last couple of years. Um, I use it actually not only for hunting, I use it for work too. I work a lot outside in the frigid cold of northern Manitoba where it can get like minus 45, even colder than that with the wind. And I wear merino wool all the time. So they, if you go to www.wool.love, you can go in there and check out what I'm talking about. They got base layers like shirts, long underwear, socks, and they also have a sister company called Northwall. So if you're looking for something a little bit bigger than you know your base layer, Northwall will have what you're looking for. Go to their website. If you want to buy something from them, from their website, use our promo code PANORAMIC10 at checkout. And you can also find it on Amazon and a few other spots. So you can probably just Google it as well. But check them out. They're a huge supporter of our podcast and uh, a big supporter of this episode in particular. So thanks a lot to Wool Love. Today's intro is just the two of us, Chase and I. So I better introduce Chase now so everyone knows who's on this one. But Chase, you're uh, you're over by Winnipeg somewhere, I take it? Oh, hello. I am, uh, yeah. I'm sitting at home base right now. Nothing too exciting happening here. Sitting out nope. another uh, winter storm, hopefully the final of the final in the south, but uh, waiting for spring to hit. When the hell's Groundhog Day? It's passed already. Did he see his goddamn shadow? I'm not too sure. I can't remember. I, I don't really pay attention to too much of that folklore, so um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't... I can't remember like what the deal is, but if he sees his shadow, that means that it's going to be an early spring, but if he doesn't see his shadow... It's going to be a longer winter, I think, right? I don't know. I can't remember. I think if he sees his shadow, he gets scared and goes back for another few weeks of winter. Oh, maybe, yeah. Either way, like somebody obviously shot that groundhog because it <laughs> feels like winter's <laughs> never going to end. Yeah, Farmer John plugged him in the wood pile, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I was actually, I've been working up north here in Key, uh, in northern Manitoba at the dam called Kiask. And I spent my last, I had a few days off, so I went down to Thompson, spent it with my sister and her family, got to watch a little bit of uh, provincial hockey. My niece is in, uh, playing with, uh, I think it's a peewee league or peewee team there in Thompson. So I got to watch some hockey, and holy crap, did that bring back some memories. And not only that, is there ever some crazy parents in this <laughs> province of Manitoba? <laughs> like, there was people, like, these kids are like, there's the odd one on a team that could like actually skate and then deek through people and shoot and score. But it was like, there's maybe one per team, but the parents, it's like every one of their kids could do that. And it's just like, okay, yeah. like your kid can barely like stick handle. Like don't be yelling at them to like <laughs> take a slap shot. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, let them have some fun. But it was, it was actually pretty fun watching the kids and they had um, this like pizza shootout at the end of the game in the one game Gracie was in. And she she plays defense, and she's a stay-at-home defenseman, so she doesn't get the chance to score too often. But they put her in the shootout, and she ended up scoring. So she was super pumped, and it was so funny and cute at the same time because she didn't, like, really know how to celebrate. So she just kind of, like, put put her hands in the air and, like, 
skated back to the bench and I don't know. I thought it was pretty funny, but I was so happy and proud of her. Got, got a goal. That's cool, so, man. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, my uh, oldest kid kind of just started his first, I guess, organized hockey this year. It, it's more of like a learn to play hockey session than anything is there's no real games or anything happening but uh right so that's kind of exciting but part of that was was kind of introducing him to the game of hockey off the ice as well because for him to help understand it and uh a couple times we went to the rink to watch just a couple other games in town here and it's exciting man i haven't i haven't watched a hockey game in person for a long time and and like nonetheless i mean jets games i've seen a few a while ago but um you know it, it was it was kind of a, a good feeling being back in the rink and having that uh you know the vibe you get from from a hockey rink you know what i mean oh yeah it's kind of cool i know i i went to that hockey rink and i haven't been to like a kids hockey game in years and actually when i was in university i coached a little bit of kids hockey with a couple of buddies from university um but like getting back into that rink and the rink atmosphere, you know, having a coffee and it's kind of cool in the rink and just the atmosphere was just like brought back so many memories that are like almost made me want to have a kid. Mm-hmm. Like I was just like, man, I can't wait to be a hockey dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention too, or just kind of ask you a question um, for, for your kid that's in it um, and it's new for him, it must be kind of different too with everything like with COVID, like this is kind of like, new for him and not only that like socializing with other kids his age other than like daycare or whatever right like Mm -hmm. what do you was that do you think that's hard on those kids that way or do you think that's like what do you think that way yeah definitely i mean covid is tough on kids all all around um and every kid's a little bit different how they how they handle stuff deck um our oldest he's a little bit of a uh he i think hypersensitive and he kind of He's a bit, uh, gets a bit anxious in new social situations. So it was, it was kind of tough for him to, he, like, he loves hockey, he loves skating, loves shooting the puck and all that, but doesn't like when the coach tells him to do something, like, kind of, kind of shuts down. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And, uh, wasn't into playing a lot of hockey with, like, kind of, they did like a little three on three or whatever, and he just wasn't into participating. He doesn't really understand the sport. So that was kind of like how we, like I said earlier, how we kind of, trying to get them to see what it's about mm-hmm. um but yeah stuff man and it's yeah. uh it's it's uh st- strange because like just how everything works in like the school system and how how we were interacting with everybody over the last couple of years is it's been their life pretty much coming through it and it's now it's hopefully changing for the better hopefully nothing gets worse again but uh yeah, it's a weird time. Weird yeah, time. For sure. And I like it and that's the thing too is um I know when I was younger, I went in hockey, I think when I was like four, my dad put me in minor hockey and I, I clearly I don't remember like much about it, but I do remember like the kids with me, they're a couple years older and I actually quit hockey after that year and I never went back for like maybe a year or two years after. And then I got back into it and like then I really liked it, you know. So there, there is a thing there too. I think if uh, as soon as that interest hits, like then they'll probably love. Like your kids will probably love it, right? Like once he understands and has a, like a deeper interest in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you say that too because I remember like my first introduction to hockey, and it, there's not a lot that I remember from my childhood. You know, that's like there's not a lot of 
place I can go back to be like, oh yeah, I remember that kind of thing. But I do remember when my parents were talking about signing me up for hockey. I was about five years old, I guess. And, and I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to play fucking hockey. You know what I mean? <laughs> like this I didn't want to. I just, just had like an anxiety about it or whatever, right? So, um, and then it ended up being something that I loved playing throughout my yeah. teenage years, you know? So funny how it changes. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, although this is, uh, I don't know, talking about our childhood and hockey, this is an outdoors podcast. So I will swing it back to some outdoors talk. Um, well, while I was in Thompson, I got to go and do a little bit of like almost pre-fishing for our trip to Partridge Crop. We're, we're going to be heading out there at the end of March to do a little bit of fishing. Um, so I got to get out there with um, with Corey from All Train Bear Hunts, and he went and showed me around and got to do some fishing in one of his shacks. I got to bring my Jiffy Ice Auger with me. So I was super pumped to kind of show him it because I, I, he's got an eye on, so we were kind of like, oh, yeah, look at mine. Oh, yeah, look at mine going back and forth, you know. But, you know, no matter what type of electric or no matter what type of auger that you have, we both had electric. Um, it's so nice drilling holes in shacks that are permanent or even like in your pop-up or whatever. Um, there's no fumes. It's super lightweight. Um, and the one thing that he pointed out to me with his is that like he went to a left, he's got a gas obviously as well, but he went to electric as well because um, just of the weight, right? Like, mm-hmm. Um, throwing it in your toboggan and he's also got a plane so if he's ever you know wants to throw it in the plane to go somewhere um he's got that option and just saving that little bit of weight right and then yeah. not having mixed fuel and and i don't know all the rules and regulations behind flying with fuel but i'm pretty sure you can't have that like you can't have your auger with fuel in it in the plane like you put it in a in a normal like jug or can or whatever but like i said i don't know all the rules but yeah a couple of things he was pointing out there was just like the weight and not mixing fuel and doing all that stuff. So um, I don't know where I was going with that train of thought, but it really makes me, makes me think about the Jiffy Rogue that we've been using and and how easy it is and you don't have to worry about fuel. Like, I, I love it. And I know that we're going to be using it coming north to Thompson here right away. And, um, yeah, super excited to be using it, using a bunch of that other stuff like the torch and the different size of flights, 10, like 8-inch, 10-inch, the electric, the gas. We're going to be doing it all, trying it all. So I'm super excited about that. And if anybody is looking to get a nice auger, maybe the end of the season here, they're going on sale at a bunch of different shops. You can go to, you know, anywhere, any ice fishing shop, they'll probably have a Jiffy there. But look into it. They're they're an awesome auger. We've been using them for the last like three or four months and, and we don't have many complaints. Like we have like the normal, you know, wear and tear breakdown, broke a button, broke this, you know. But it's uh, it's super easy to get fixed. Mm-hmm. We love them. Check out uh, Jiffy Ice Augers online. You can just Google it, and um, yeah, they have free shipping in the, in the states and in Canada. Like I said, they're all over at all the pretty much all the sports shops. Jiffyonice.com, baby. Check them out. Check them out. So we were fishing. I caught tr- Chase. I'm not gonna lie to you. The one day I fished by myself, I bet you I caught forty fish. Um, Here we go. Here we go. Now, no, now, like this is. Exactly. I know when the bullshit starts flowing out because I was fishing by myself and I'm not going to lie to you. All right. Lies, Those are two lies engaged. Like, I, I should have <laughs> been marking them down and like, or like real time, like Snapchatting you or something. But I caught burbot. I caught pike. I caught one perch and like a handful of walleye. And actually, the walleye fish was so good that I threw back my first three because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to catch more. And I did. So I was pretty happy about that. And then the next day, we went out. Um, I was like a group of us went out. 
we didn't do as hot actually as, as I did by myself. We did catch a lot of good good fish. So when we get up there at the end of the month, I think you're gonna have a blast. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And you were saying Corey was also saying that the throughout the the spring here, the fishing generally just gets better and better up there. So yeah, I'm pumped. I've, yeah. I've never ice fished um, up in the North Country there, and spent a lot of time up there working and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to get up there and uh have a different mission in mind right do you have what is your quick question is like do you have anything in your mind that you're going to use for like lures or setups that are going to be a little bit different from your normal lake winnipeg setup like are there things that you are going to want to try or different type of lures or something you might not use all the time on lake winnipeg oh man um that's a good question i haven't really thought about it too much um i I guess i gotta kind of see what's what it's like there um i'm assuming there's a bit of current around the river there right uh well we're kind of like off the off the like offshoot of the river like we're not actually on the river so gotcha so water's pretty calm there yeah yeah one thing i might want to try is uh to go find some big pike well that's what i was going to mention to you is that um i talked to the boys down there at stillwater and I gave them a list of stuff that I need to come and buy from them just to make sure they had them at like tip ups mm-hmm. is one thing that I don't normally use down here. Like I don't use them too often. You see them on YouTube. Jay uses them. A whole bunch of guys use them all the time for big pike. Um, but yeah, using tip ups. So I'm going down to Silver and I'll tell you my list right now. I got two tip ups that I'm going to buy. I also got some, obviously some line and stuff for the tip ups. And then those, what are they? King, uh, not King, are they King Strike? Strike King. Strike King. Yeah. Those red eye two tap lures. Did you try one of those yet? No, I haven't. No. Well, I got one, or I got two of them actually. And um, the one that was super awesome, it was like a Bud Light Blue. I actually made a quick video on it. I think it's on <laughs> Bud Light Blue. <laughs> well, that's what I call it. That's amazing. What would you call it? I, I don't know, but I, li- I like the reference. I like the reference. <laughs> yeah, it's like a Bud Light Blue color. And it's on, I made a video on TikTok, maybe on Instagram too. It's got a little red eye. And man, I smoked fish with that, like hammered fish with that thing. And on day two, when I was fishing a bunch of people and I was like bragging about, I'm like, yeah, I've caught all these fish on this yesterday. And like, sure as shit, like two fish later, catch this, like assuming a big jack and just snap me off. So I lost my favorite lure. So I'm going to Stillwater uh, Adventures in Verdon uh, when I get back and I'm going to be picking up some of them as well. If anybody looking to get some last minute ice fishing gear, go to stillwateradventures.ca. Can you fact check that for me? stillwateradventures.ca go to stillwateradventures.ca they got an they got an easter on there so you can pick up any type of uh fishing gear that you might need for your your last trip or march madness this month check them out or check them out when you go downtown verdon if you're coming through verdon coming up to do some fishing or whatever maybe check them out they got a whole bunch of cool stuff like the jiffy ice auger like i've talked about they've got uh striker gear that we've been wearing they've got dsg for the women so then their gear is like super awesome um and all your lures fishing rods sleighs and they're having a huge sale too like getting rid of some of their their winter fishing stuff so if you're looking to upgrade you're looking to buy new um check them out that's stillwateradventures.ca nice 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 and uh what else has been happening on your end man you're, you're slaving away up there you got your little break that you had in thompson um hammered some fish yep yep <clears throat> I met some fish, did watch a bit of hockey, 
Um, and that's about it. Back to the grind here. Hopefully another 10 days and I'll be back down south. And I actually talked to our good friend, uh, Hack. If anybody doesn't know who Hack is, we've got a couple of podcast episodes with him. He's also got a blog right up as well about an elk hunt that's on our website, uh, www.panoramicoutdoors.com. But I saw the Hack, and I think when we get back, we're going to try a trip to um, around the Langruth Amaranth area and get onto Lake Manitoba somewhere around there. Nice. And uh, shoot for some, some perch and walleye fishing and try to make a day out of it. Uh, we haven't got, got to fish together all year, which is odd because we usually get out for two or three trips a year. Um, so yeah, we're going to shoot for that. That sounds like a good time, man. Um, the one thing that, yeah, I, I was hoping for some warmer weather here to, to come rolling around because, um, typically in March things warm up, snow starts melting and the, the driving on Lake Winnipeg gets a lot, hell of a lot easier. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going to happen this year, which I'm kind of disappointed about. We're March madness right now. And, uh, I got a pretty busy March coming up, but there, there's not a whole bunch of options for me right now in a wheeled vehicle besides hitting the river or uh, going nut to butt with Tristan on the old uh, Ventura What's there. Your favorite? <laughs> it was funny because the other couple podcasts ago, you said something about like, yeah, you're maybe looking at, oh, how do you say it, presenting a budget to Jody for a track machine? <laughs> something with <laughs> something track. With track. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, said, you said that, but I actually got a message from a friend of ours. He's like, hey, is uh, Chase looking for a track truck? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, I was listening to your podcast. And he said he wanted a track machine. I got a buddy that's selling one, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, I think he was like meaning like a sled or a quad or something. But yeah. So I never, I never relayed that message. So if you are looking for a track truck, let me know, Chase. I'll uh, hook you up. Got a good deal on one? I guess so, yeah. Can you give me a short term high interest loan on it? <laughs> Lease. <laughs> You got to give it back with new tracks when you're done. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. What would you buy right now if you if you had an option between a track truck, new snowmobile, or a track quad, or side what by side? What about side by side? Yeah, track quad or well, track side by side. Considering the price of a track side by side, brand new would probably be the same price as a used truck with tracks. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know what I mean. Maybe like more. It's, it's, maybe more. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'd have to go with side by side with tracks, just because you could throw it on a trailer and go anywhere you want. But the thing is, man, by the time you invest money in a side-by-side with tracks and then you need to buy a trailer if you don't have one, I mean, you could be into that thing for 40000 45000 Because I've heard of guys getting like those four-door, four-seater side-by-sides with tracks and into it for like 35000 bucks. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So by the time you buy a trailer, yeah, you might as well buy a track truck and just leave it, uh, leave it at Tyler's. I know. I know. That's the thing. <laughs> and it's like... But the the maneuverability of, with it, right, is like how do you, if I want to go fish in the white shell now and I want to go to Point the Bow and fish for Lakers on Forbes Lake, I'm not bringing a track truck in there. You probably get the no. side-by-side in there. Ideally, snow machine, right? So yeah. how, how do you and weigh I mean, it like, out? If you're, if you're looking at weighing out the odds and prices and everything else, it almost makes sense to buy a $10,000 sled and then a $10,000 quad. Yeah. Then at least you have summer moving and winter moving equipment, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For the price of, uh, for half the price of a side-by-side of tracks. That's true. And uh, the old 10G doesn't get you too far these days at the price of toys. I'll tell you that much. Maybe now with with the price of fuel, things will be going down (laughs) and things opening back up. But, uh, but yeah, Um, it's funny. I was uh, filling up at co-op the other day. 
and now you know the the they have the when you're doing the manual fills they have the 135 dollar option which used to fill up my truck and now i use it to fill up the minivan (laughs) which is ridiculous yeah oh man that's crazy so that's the other thing too like our trip to thompson um you know, if, for our panoramic budget, it's almost we're going to have to add another 25% to it. Yeah, I think so. Let me clear it with crazy. the accountant. Looks like it's all signed off. We're good to go. <laughs> Perfect. But uh, how about this podcast we got coming down the pipe, man? Um, I'm pretty excited about it. I really enjoyed yeah. chatting with Nate here. Um, I think I think we could uh, go on a few good hunts with this dude and, and uh, get along pretty good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like I kind of said at the start of the podcast, you know, hear it right away. So I don't want to repeat myself, but like he um he's one of those guys that we met we met on through Instagram and just his photography and his passion for the outdoors, getting his kids involved, doing all these things is like, man, this his stars line up right with our stars and um it was it was we've had some really good chats um over the last like let's say 4 or 5 months. And there, you know, we're looking for some some people to submit some some blog posts, and we were talking to him about his moose hunting, and he was game, and uh, started submitting some writing, and um, now it's all it's all history. Now we're now we're doing a podcast about it, and I'm super super happy that we asked him to come on the podcast to talk about it because he's got a lot of good insight and a lot of good um, ideas. And the thing is, is like a lot of us, and maybe I'm overstepping here speaking maybe i I don't want to speak for chase or tristan but a lot of our hunts are usually with like motorized vehicles boats or quads and we're doing the moose hunt that way when he's kind of doing you know a lot of backcountry stuff too Mm -hmm. mixed in with uh with the traditional moose hunt let's say so it's it's very cool to listen to it that's for sure yeah yeah and he kind of mentioned at the start too that you know he's not he's not coming at it thinking he's a professional at all but he wants to share some tips and tricks and i i think uh we kind of wrapped it up at the end there too saying you know there's there's a lot of guys that hunt moose that i don't know how you could classify them as professional or whatever but i think the big takeaway here is that nate's got a lot of good experience he pays attention out there he pays attention to where he's going he does his homework and uh i think he's got a good lot of good info to share with anybody that's looking to uh either upgrade their current moose hunting setup or to get into moose hunting as well yeah yeah for sure and the other thing that i I do want to point out is like if there's anyone that's out there that's listening like oh this is all old news and stuff like is it really like that those are the kind of things that like bother me about some of the old timer hunters like oh that doesn't work oh that doesn't work like why are you doing that and it's just like well you know we're trying like we're trying to learn new things we're trying to like take suggestions from other people like just because you you know skin the moose the same way a thousand times doesn't mean that there's not a better way to do it mm-hmm. like there's always something that you can learn so yeah like anybody that's tuning in um i i and not only that but like in the future i hope we do more of these even if it's talking about that same moose hunt over and over and over again you'll always find something new or have something else to talk about right so yeah it's good to have these conversations for sure all right man well should we get this baby rolling launch it launch it All right, and today in the podcast, we have Nathan Carthers joining us. Did I get that? Did I nail your last name right there, Nate? Close, Carruthers. Carruthers, all right. I've been staring at it for like the last five minutes trying to figure it out, so <laughs> almost That's got how good it. we are. That's how good we are at podcasting. We do our research really well before we jump on. 
<laughs> so Nate, why don't you uh, let everybody know where you're tuning in from today? Uh, I'm at home right now in uh, Warman, uh, Saskatchewan. So just, uh, I guess, north of Saskatoon, just a little bedroom community. Um, yeah, but uh, pretty much grew up in Saskatoon and, and live in Warman now. Nice, nice. A gapper, we call them in Manitoba. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a, a little bit of a backstory here too for anyone that's listening and wants to get to know Nate. We actually met him through Instagram, um, and lot like a lot of your pictures and stuff, Unreal pictures. Started chatting back and forth, and uh, you're starting to be a little bit of a panoramic ambassador for us. So we got we got a blog post. If anyone wants to check that out, it's um, on our webpage www.panoramicoutdoors.com and it was so well written Nate we're like you know what we got to get this guy in the podcast and talk about this moose hunter just moose hunting in general so anyone that's listening that's the backstory that's why Nate's on this podcast yeah and before we hop into the podcast we're going to do our traditional uh five burning questions here with Nate and uh then we're going to get to talking some moose hunting so um you know thinking about kind of moose hunting being in moose camp I got a couple like camp related questions coming out of the woodworks here, but, uh, first question for me, uh, campfires or wood stoves, which would you prefer and why? Uh, probably campfires, honestly. Um, and only just because that probably means I'm living out of a backpack or living in the tent somewhere. Um, yeah, I mean at the lake, I guess you can do both, but, um, yeah, I think I'm probably more of a campfire guy. Nice. Nice. It's, it looks like, uh, I mean, through your feed and stuff like that, looks like you you spent your fair share of time, uh, not only hunting moose, but like um, going after some more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A little bit more remote stuff. Like, yeah, a little more yeah. uh, tougher to pursue game, like sheep and stuff like yeah. that. You spent some time in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say it's um, something that as I've gotten a little older here and maybe started looking for some other challenges, but it, I mean, it's always been something that's interested me is mountain hunting. Um, I've tried now as I'm getting, I guess, a little bit more time back. Our kids are getting a little older, so I'm getting a little more time to kind of pursue that that side of things. Um, living in Saskatchewan, there's obviously not a lot of mountains around. Yeah. Um, so you gotta, I've got to travel a little bit for that. So it's it's nice to be getting a little bit more time and 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 start to kind of pursue that a little bit more um whatever it may be you know sheep mountain goats whatever yeah um i'm gonna go into a little bit of rabbit hole off the first burning question here but how how do you find yourself uh preparing for the mountains now i know like typically i've had conversations with guys that hunt in the mountains and talking about coming out there and they're like yeah do it while you're young enough kind of thing and and uh you mentioning now that your kids are getting older you're getting time back and and uh like as we get older it's tougher to get in shape tougher to stay in shape tougher to prepare so uh what what do you uh what do you find works to to help you out when you're out in the mountains Uh, well i'm a really good example of of anybody can do it you just have to you know put a little time in and maybe try to uh try to get a little bit better shape um i think the one thing that coming from the prairies and, and maybe a little bit flatter province uh, not really being uh, having mountains or hills in the back backyard that I can go to um, I, I've always found that uh, when I'm exercising lots of lots of stair climbing lots of lunges you know that sort of stuff lots of squats you know it's really your for me at least it seems like it's kind of like your hips and your your core strength and and your legs that are really gonna power you in the mountains mm-hmm. and 
just from my own limited experiences doing that stuff, um, the times that I think I've, I've done the best have been the times when I've really spent a lot of time, um, you know, doing step ups and weighted pack workouts and stuff like that. And there's lots of good resources out there nowadays for, uh, guys like me that maybe don't have the mountains in the, in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, it's very accessible. It's very attainable for guys like us to live in the prairie provinces. Um, you just have to kind of look for it and, and find some of those workouts. They, nice. can, they can be pretty easy. Good news. Good news for me. Yeah, <laughs> definitely good news for me. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that it's, uh, I'm in my forties now and it's, it's, I'm not in my twenties anymore. I can definitely feel that every time I, uh, every time I go hunting. So, yeah, I'm uh, well, I'm in mid thirties right now and, and, uh, like multiple times a week, I think back to my twenties and just think, think about how good I, I had it back then. <laughs> if only I had actually take, taken fitness seriously when I was in my twenties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so second question, camp-related question, favorite moose camp meal and beverage? Is there anything that you kind of look forward to heading into camp or that you plan around? Uh, favorite moose camp meal, I mean, a fresh moose tenderloin over a fire would be pretty mm. pretty good. I've only done that once or twice, but um, but yeah, I mean, favorite moose camp meal, that would be it. And then, uh, you know, maybe a, uh, just either a real cold beer or... Uh, you know, something just when you finish packing, you know, like some of the moose hunts I've done, you, we've had to pack quarters out a little ways, or we've, you know, just had a, and generally a moose is a pretty hard animal to maneuver once you get them down. So mm-hmm. uh, you're usually pretty tired and wiped out by the end of it. So um, just a good cold beer, I think. Yeah. Right on. And uh, this, this kind of ties in with the, the meal and the drink, but um What's your what's your one guilty pleasure when you're heading into camp? Is there something that you always pack with you to to bring? Something that'll take the edge off? We'll say. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a fat kid at heart. So uh, uh, last year here on our the moose hunt that I did in Alberta, we uh, I would say my my hunting partner and I probably crushed about two or three big bags of like double stuffed Oreos. And just, <laughs> just murdered them. Nice. But, so yeah, something like that. You know, there's got to be a sweet like. When I'm deer hunting or something like that, usually there's a bag of Twizzlers in my truck. But yeah, yeah. But backpack hunt, maybe a stuff a bag of Oreos in there. Right on, right on. And then uh, again on the moose hunting topic, um, if there's one place you'd want to go that you haven't hunted already, where would you want to go hunt moose? Uh, Alaska, Yukon, NWT, somewhere up, you know, way up north. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I, I think one of the reasons why I I like moose hunting up in northern Saskatchewan and, and Alberta so much as um, I grew up, you know, watching the Jim Shockey videos and all that stuff, right? And, you know, former guest of yours um, and, and watching that stuff and just kind of dreaming of going on those those hunts, right? And mm-hmm. and maybe not super accessible for, for a working guy like me to, to do that every year. So this is the next best thing is to try to find them in our, in our own backyards. Yeah, yeah. Um... Are you finding the, is there much of a moose population around, uh, like hometown there for you? Uh, around Warman, there's the, there's the odd one. I mean, there's, there's moose kind of scattered around the farmland in Saskatchewan. Um, there's a few, we're fairly close to the South Saskatchewan river here. Mm-hmm. So there's some that kind of pop in and out of the river, you know, in the farmland. Um, but there's not, there's not a lot. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say they're, they're really common down here, but uh, yeah, they're kind of all over on the farmland, uh, in pockets. Yeah, they seem to be moving in across the prairies here in Manitoba and uh, doing pretty well. 
surprisingly. So, yeah, I think that happened in Saskatchewan probably about 15, 20 years ago. They started popping up everywhere in the south, and then slowly uh, as they expanded, I think uh, they started opening up a lot more seasons for them. Yeah, and now it's kind of back to you know a manageable level. Yeah, yeah. There's huge bulls being shot for for quite a while though. Yeah, it's you see a few photos floating around on uh, the social feeds of, of like a basher group of bulls that are just monstrous heading across like a canola field or an alfalfa field or something like that. So it's it's pretty unique. Yeah, that was the the dream for a lot of Saskatchewan residents for a, a while, <laughs> uh, quite a while. There was to draw one of those tags and be able to go after those great big sixty inch bulls and yeah. You know, in the wheat fields and canola yeah that's cool and uh the last of our five burning questions if you ain't after moose what's your second favorite pursuit for for a very very long time and i probably still have to say um mule deer would probably be the second second favorite thing uh for me but um i don't get the opportunity to do it as much but sheep is getting getting up there too yeah uh but yeah no it, it would probably be mule deer um i uh you know, from the time I was a little kid, you know, watching, hearing my dad talk about going spot and stock mule deer hunting in Southern Saskatchewan and kind of growing up with that and, and, um, you know, really wanting to do that as I, as I got older and then, um, bow hunting, starting bow hunting in my teens with my dad. And then now as an adult, like it's probably been, you know, 30 years now of, of, uh, 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 sorry, mule deer hunting. Nice. Definitely number two. Nice. Yeah. That, that's, uh, I mean, it's kind of one thing that we don't get a lot here in Manitoba is a spot and stock style hunting. The closest yeah. thing I guess we can get to it is is kind of elk hunting, but it's that's a different animal unto itself. It's not really yeah. spot and stock too much. It's more yeah, cra- crash bush and, and a little bit of moose hunt, moose hunting, spot and stock their chase. Yeah, that is we both, true. We yeah. both we both drew in southwestern Manitoba, both harvested moose doing it that way, kind of you know. But yeah, <clears throat> that is true. Hey, Nathan, I you kind of already talked about it there a few seconds ago, but like, how did hunting start out for you? Um, by the sounds of it, a little bit of hunting throughout your family, but you know, you start out uh, hunting as a young kid and evolve into a guy that likes to hit the mountains. Like, how did that all work out for you? Uh, yeah, it it really did start, I guess, with my dad. He was, I guess, you'd call him nowadays an, an adult onset hunter. He he started hunting as an adult um, when he moved to to Alberta, I believe. Um, and I just kind of, as a little kid, you know, like every little boy, just dad's, dad's kind of your hero, right? So you're following him around and trying to do everything dad did. So fishing and hunting were, were the two things that I just really enjoyed um, doing with my dad and would always try to kind of lose on my way in somehow. And uh, so, yeah, you know, growing up, that was kind of the thing. Uh, he was a pretty busy in his job, so we didn't get a ton of hunting time. Uh, so that just made those trips, you know, just all the more special when we did get them a, a weekend of deer hunting here or, uh, you know a couple of days to go down and, and chase mule deer uh you know a few days of duck hunting kind of thing like those were always just the, the best times as a kid so that's kind of really what planted it for me are you in the in the spring uh flyway for the snow geese at all up that way yeah it, it wouldn't be far away um they definitely buy yeah, up they pass through here yeah okay and yeah. they've seemed to almost shifted right out of manitoba in the in the for this yeah, spring uh, they they come through once in a while but they seem to cut like loop around southern manitoba as they make their way up to churchill kind of thing so it's kind of uh disappointing but that's the way yeah, she goes there definitely <laughs> is there is some spring spring goose hunting here usually i see them while i'm out shed hunting i'm not the biggest waterfowl hunter but nice uh, i've definitely seen them passing over yeah yeah 
Right on. And do quite a bit of shed hunting in the springs now? I have in the past, um, less so the last few years, but yeah, and, you know, as a younger man, that was probably the, uh, one of the, one of the biggest winter and spring things for me would be to, to get out and just pound the hills and pound the, uh, the bush when I lived in Peace River for, uh, for sheds. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I mean, I think Sheldon alluded to earlier here, but, but part of the conversation that we want to have with you too here is um, based around kind of the, the blog post that you, you'd shared and hopefully bring it to people in a, in a bit of a different format around moose hunting, um, some of your e-scouting tactics, and then uh, the hunt itself and, and uh, what happens after you pull the trigger, right? Um, something that kind of caught me in the article was was like, how do you plan for once you get this thing down? And I know we've, we've spoken about this before on the podcast as well, elk hunting, moose hunting, whatever it may be. Um, like you said, sometimes you don't think about that, that after effect and, and, you know, it's a lot of work to get that sucker out of there. There's a lot of meat to haul out. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear some of your, uh, tips and tricks, but before we get there, let's talk e-scouting when you're planning a hunt, why don't you take me through like the first few steps of how are you going to plan it and, uh, kind of how that goes down? Sure. Um, I guess, you know, like to, to start out, this isn't necessarily the, the, what I wrote in that article and it's, it's not really to kind of try to pass myself off as the, the best moose hunter there is like, that's, that's not the idea there. It's really just to try to pass on some tips and tricks that I've learned over the, the years through some trial and error and some, mm-hmm. some mistakes and, and stuff like that. Um, and try to learn from those and just maybe pass those tips on for people that may be just starting out. Um, one of the things that I really have learned over the years that, uh, that is really valuable and, and that I've been doing for quite, quite some time, probably, you know, many years before it became popular was, um, to, to use satellite images or to use, uh, topographic maps or, or whatever you have, uh, to try to pick out areas. And, and when I talk about stuff like hunting moose in the boreal forest or whatever, um, what I'm really talking about those, those areas where, um, you know, that kind of vast Northern wilderness that we all imagine where there's not a lot of roads, um, you know, your main access might be, maybe if you're lucky, you'll have some cut lines or forestry roads, um, but rivers, lakes, you know, maybe even fly in stuff. That's the kind of stuff I'm thinking about, um, when I talk about that and, and moose in those places tend to happen or tend to exist in pretty low densities. Um, you know, a lot of people I think get tricked into thinking that they would just be moose everywhere and that's just going to be easy peasy. Let's just get in there and get a moose and get going. Um, but you know, the, the reality of it is, is that they're usually in pockets and, you know, pockets of good habitat and, and in the rut, the bulls will kind of, uh, move around a lot, you know, like they're going to be searching for cows. They're going to be covering a lot of area, uh, looking for cows and, and receptive cows. Um, so I think the, the e-scouting part of it really comes into like, if you're going to plan a hunt and you want to go and do that and have that sort of adventure style hunt where you, you know, you quad in or you boat down a river or whatever it is, you really want to take that big, vast wilderness that you're going into and just kind of boil it down to a manageable size area that you can hunt and, and really kind of condense it down all into something that's, that's a little more manageable for you to tackle. Right. Cause I think one of those mistakes that people make, when they do this stuff is they, they bite off more than they can bite off more than they can chew. Um, or they, they kind of tend to get a little bit lost in the wilderness, uh, so to speak. Um, so the e-scouting thing is really just a matter of, you know, having a look at your maps. And nowadays we have Google maps. Um, everybody has that, 
Uh, an app that you guys work with and that I've used a lot for many years now is iHunter. Um, it works really, really well for this stuff. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Um, and, you know, you can use that to kind of take the area that you want to hunt, maybe the lake or, or whatever it happens to be that, uh, or the zone that you want to hunt and really just identify those areas, whether they're the creeks or their wetlands or their, their lakes, cut blocks, whatever, pick those areas out, try to figure out the areas where, um, where the moose are actually going to be hanging out. You know, if you were, a, you got to remember a, a bull moose is looking for cows. And so what you really want to do is find the areas where there's going to be lots of cows and, and try to find those places and um, set yourself up in a spot where you can catch those bulls when they're responding to your cow calls, right? So ideally that's a place where a bull is already going to be checking because he knows that there's going to be cows around that area because it's good habitat. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, really just set yourself up um, try to figure out where your shooting lanes are, are going to be. Um, you know, that's really important. A lot of time guys kind of bomb off into the wilderness and we'll, you know, Oh, this is a great lake. This is awesome. We'll set up, we'll start calling. They don't really think about where the moose is actually going to show up. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's one of the things I hit on in the article is really spend a lot of time to just kind of look at that map and pick those areas, not just of good habitat, but areas that are good places to call for moose and that, uh, that you can set up with uh, the prevailing winds and actually, you know, have a bull come down, you know, he's, he's usually going to try to circle you. So have a bull actually show up and, and show up downwind to you um, or try to, and in a place where he's going to expose himself that so you can get a shot. So yeah, so that's the first thing I look for. Yeah. When I was reading that article too, like, I don't, like for guys like us, when I assume yourself as well, like when it comes to e-scouting, we just can't jump in a plane and check out areas. Like we really got to look at maps and do those kind of things. And that's one of the things that I think, um for me like I, I rode on a lot of people's coattails when it comes to moose hunting in north I, I know a few people and they've took me to camps and stuff so i haven't really got to indulge in doing that type of scouting and you know like the one thing you say about your prevailing winds that's some of the stuff that i don't really think about until i'm actually there right so that's some really good point like if you're going to be doing your e-scouting think about that wind you know if it's a north wind and and how you'd want to set up because you know that's a really good point yeah no exactly and and those are the things that um you know one of the reasons why I wrote this this article or the idea, I guess, uh, what kind of triggered me on it was I listened to you guys talk about your moose hunt last fall. And um, and it's not that I thought that you guys did a poor job or anything like that, but it was just like, hey, you know, like those are same things I've done in the past, you know, um, not maybe not have the perfect setup or, or some of the things I know you guys were, I think you were having issues getting into some spots or with mm -hmm. the water levels and stuff like that. Some things you can't control, right? Um, but I just, it, what it got me thinking of is, is just all those little things that I wish I had known the first couple of times I've been moose hunting. And so if I can kind of pass some of those tricks and, and tips on to people, then, you know, you're just more likely to up, it's about, it's about upping your odds mm -hmm. and just uh, kind of increasing your odds of having a successful encounter. Cause you might only get one encounter in, in a 10 day hunt or a six or seven day hunt. And if you, if you blow it, uh, it might be it, you know, so um, so yeah, you know, it depends what you're hunting, but you know, river, like wetlands, uh, creek, uh, old oxbows, anything with lots of willow and alder, those are always good areas. Um, that's what I'm looking for. And then I'm just trying to figure out how I can hunt those. Um, you know, obviously I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to get in there. That's kind of the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I would give preference to, you know, places where I know I can get in there and I'm not going to be walking right across the shooting lane that I want the bull to show up in, or that I'm not going to be winding the area that I think a bull is going to come from. Um, 
And you got to remember here, when you're picking these spots, you don't necessarily have to get right where you think the moose is living. You just have to get within a mile or two of where you think he's going to be. Um, because a moose will come from a couple miles away to check you out. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that'll kind of fit in later on um, in the second and third parts of the article. Uh, but the, the, the first thing is really just make a list of four or five good spots that you want to hit. And, and you try to figure out how you're going to get in there and then start making yourself a bit of a plan on, you know, how long is it going to take me to get in there? You know, do I need a quad or am I boating, you know, am I walking, whatever, figure that stuff out and then make that plan that what you figure is going to be your best spot. That's the place I'm going to go. And that's going to take me an hour to get in there. Okay. I got to leave two hours before legal light because I got to get in there and let everything settle down before legal light hits. Mm-hmm. And I might only get to call two spots in the morning. But those are going to be my two spots and I'm going to be there for those perfect couple of hours in the morning. And that's going to be the spot I'm going to be in. Right. When you're looking at a spot on the map, is there anything that, that would stand out to you um, that would say make the difference between like a really good spot and a spot that kind of looks good, but you're you're like, you see something on there that's just not going to work out? Uh, burns. You know, uh, one of the things that really catches my eyes is, is burns. Um so if you're looking at, if you're doing the e-scouting part of it, um, depending on what your imagery you're looking at, try to figure out what year the photos were taken. Um, so if you're looking at satellite imagery from 2010, well, if there's a fresh burn there, you know, by the time you're now we're in 2022, that's a 12-year-old burn. That's actually pr- probably pretty good moose habitat. You know, it's, it's going to hold some animals or there's a good chance, especially if it's close to some wet areas, that that's going to be a good spot to be. Um, you cool. know, this... So, so that catches my eye right away is a good burn or like a, a 10 or so year old forestry cut block. Those are the type of places I'll, I'll look for, um, you know, inlets and outlets of lakes, uh, wetlands, uh, any sort of places where you've got those low marshy kind of drainages that have lots of, uh, lots of swampland and maybe some good openings where you could set up and call so that, you know, an animal is going to have to expose himself to come across. Mm-hmm. Cut lines can work for this if you're in an area like Alberta has lots of seismic lines, uh, oil and gas pipelines. So those can those can be really productive too. Um, you know, just finding spots where you can get an animal in the open. Yeah. Um, quick pro tip for everybody here in Manitoba, and I don't know if, if they have this in Saskatchewan and Alberta or not, but pro tip. there's a, uh, <laughs> the province has a, like a burn archive um, on their website that you, you can check out year by year of the uh the fires that they, they map mapped out all the fires that went through the province and you can see all the burn yeah. area so if the yeah. maps are out of date and i know they're they're getting pretty good with their uh with updating the maps um quite frequently but uh if they are out of date you, you can always check out the the archive to see when that burn was there if there was a burn there or if maybe there was one in the past year right so i know yeah. there's um in a pretty popular moose hunting spot here in Manitoba, a pretty large burn went through, pretty large fire went through and burnt a, a huge area of some some good hunting, moose hunting. And uh, so if you don't know that, going into the deal, you might want to check it out. Burns Lockhart, sorry. Yeah. Burns can be a blessing and a curse because with burns come blowdowns and blowdowns are not a lot of fun once you've got a moose down. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's one of those things like finding something that's uh, close to a burn that or a cut block that's close to wetlands because in the that late summer or I guess late September or the October, 
the moose are going to kind of be still transitioning from from more aquatic habitats to kind of like upland habitats so if you can find those ones that are like right side by side then that means you've got good food there and there's probably some good cover around there too yeah those those cut blocks and and the uh the older burns provide a lot of uh nutrition for the moose throughout the like like you said transitioning into fall and throughout the winter they got those those uh saplings in there that are easy and accessible for them all winter and uh yeah, that's where they're going to be hanging out through the winter. So it's a good spot to check out. I got a couple, I got a tip and then I got a question for you too, Nate. Um, but like when we're talking about e-scouting, one thing that I've always kind of thought about just because I'm not in the best shape, like I always kind of think about it in those certain areas where you are going to, you know, maybe pursue a moose or shoot a moose. I always think about like, well, what's your tr- retrieval going to be like? You know what I mean? Like if you're going to be up and over a bunch of ridges and then you got to cross a slough that you have to get a boat, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of things to come that way too, just on your retrieval when it comes to e-scouting. But my question for you, I guess, too, is when you're doing your e-scouting and you're doing like some of the backcountry type of hunting, what do you prefer to, like, where do you prefer to put your camp? Like, do you, do you put it like on the outskirts of kind of where you're hunting or right heart in the middle? Like, what do you like to do that way? Kind of depends. Um, I like to be, I like to be away, a little bit away from where I really think the, the good moose hunting will be just because you're, you know, you're creating a bunch of smells, you're making a bunch of human noises and stuff like that. So if it's an area that I really wanted to, to hunt close by, uh, I would probably keep my camp a little further away, you know, a few miles kind of thing. Um, you know, the, this past fall, um, trying to think of the last few kind of northern moose hunts I've done, you know, it's always been at least four or five miles kind of as the crow flies away. Um, you know, this past fall, our, I think our camp was on a, a, a lease, an old lease uh, in Alberta. And then we would just you know, we had maybe a 15, 20 minute ATV ride to where we wanted to park and then maybe another half hour walk into our spots where we were calling. So yeah, I like to stay a little bit always with the, uh, with camp. To kind of put things into perspective for people, when you're scouting out an area, um, what, what's kind of the, the minimum size or what's, what's kind of the ideal size of, uh, of a hunt area that you would commit to? You know, is, is it going to be like a, a 15 mile radius that you're, you're kind of scoping out or is it going to be a five mile radius? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question because, you know, I think when you get on those big landscapes, um, you don't want to be, you don't want to overlap too much, but then you also don't want to have too much, um, I guess, area in between your spots because you'll waste too much time trying to get, get to them. Mm-hmm. Um, what I try to I try to group areas, you know, calling spots within a couple miles, three four miles of each other, would be ideal um, because it's far enough away that you're probably calling to different different moose, um, but it's it's close enough together that you're not going to waste a bunch of time going in between areas. Um, I think if you kind of deal in like you know, five to ten square mile blocks and try to pinpoint the best best spots in there and then you know hop to the next one and and try to get three or four that are close together. Um, you know, thinking about the last few hunts I've done, um, one was on a lake that's probably about 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers long and not very wide, but you know, big, big, uh, river inlet at the top and then a big fat swamp at the bottom. Uh, so that, that lake was what we hunted, you know, for, for the better part of a few days. And then, um, this last one here, the, the hunt I did in Alberta last year with a, with a friend of mine, um, we are probably hunting, oh, 25 square miles kind of thing. So yeah, like a, a decent sized area, but it, it had to be manageable, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's kind of one thing I found, um, like in our, in our past hunt here, I kind of, it was kind of tough to judge on 
how much area we could cover. Mm-hmm. And um, like you said, things kind of, and if anyone listened to that podcast, we kind of got screwed with the the low water levels there and uh, really affected our, our travel. But um, I had some spots picked out that were about three to five miles away from our camp, which was, I thought was going to be the most moosey area and, you know, areas that we'd focus on because I thought we could get there in, in the morning at a decent time. But, um, it, and throughout the week, we actually ended up traveling probably about 20 miles down river, which was a lot farther than, than I anticipated that's for sure so um and knowing that going back to that area on a, on a good water year now i can anticipate you know setting up some calling spots a little bit further out if necessary yeah yeah and, and that's that's the real trick with uh, with float hunts um i think you know the the, the strategy i kind of outlined in that article is um it, it's toughest to do on something like a float hunt where it's really hard to you know it takes a lot more time to get back upstream uh, to call a place or something like that. So, um, you could definitely adapt that and just say that, you know, for the, rather than keep camp at one spot, you know, maybe just plan on, you know, we're going to hunt this area for a couple of days. We're going to have two spots hunt mm-hmm. these two spots for two days. And then we're going to pack camp, float down five miles, hunt two more spots that we think look good for two days and then float down more. And then at the end, we're going to pack camp, go back up to the top, try that another, try that first, whatever good spots we had at the top. We'll try those one more time just to see if there's anything around and just kind of shut her down. Yeah. I think on on hunts like that, you got to give yourself time, I think is probably the biggest asset you can have. Yeah. Because you've got that extra uh, commuting. Yeah. I think that that's kind of what we, we had uh, figured out post hunt too, was like, if we were to do it again, I think we'd go down that 20 miles down river, set up camp there for a couple of days and then come back up and kind of like you said there. So good, uh, good to know that now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well it's it's all hindsight right and, and that's how i've i'm certainly i certainly am not perfect at this stuff i i made a lot of mistakes you know yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's the that's the best way to learn them all because sometimes when people are giving me advice i'm not always listening so <laughs> yeah yeah i'm a little hard-headed too <laughs> oh man all right, so we kind of got the e-scouting thing portion figured out here. Um, dialed in pretty good. Sheldon, you got any more questions around e-scouting? Uh, not really, no. That's, um, yeah, I think I'm good. All right, well, um, I'm, I'm curious about when it comes to the hunt part, and uh, you kind of scared me here a little bit now when you mentioned earlier that you like to get into your spot two hours before sunup. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes... Yeah that's uh yeah, yeah. That, that's a hard one for me too i'm, I'm not a morning person and so <laughs> chase is, getting in there early is not my favorite thing yeah chase is usually still drinking whiskey if i get him, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. depends on the camp depends on the camp but uh well and, and there's nothing happen. wrong with that right like some moose camps it's just about getting out and having fun and you know like if that's if that's what you're there for then and it's 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 all about what you want in your hunt so mm-hmm yeah totally. you, can always, you can always tweak it yeah um i'm curious on your your perspective on this as well too and if you have any sort of um methodology methodology behind like how you um approach your your spots and your when you call and how you rotate through those spots um a lot of guys that i've talked to about moose hunting you know 
they'll go to one spot in the morning and then one spot in the evening. And then the next morning they'll go back to that spot in, in the evening, anticipating that there's going to be a moose hanging out there throughout the night. Um, yep. do you do anything like that? What, what are your thoughts, um, around calling and changing spots and waiting at spots? Yeah. So uh, you kind of nailed it. I mean, the way I, especially in these lower density areas, um, the, the way I feel works best and the, that I think is for, at least in my experience has proven to work best is, is to get to your best spots and, and try to call those, you know, your first morning hunting, you're going to call one or two spots over the course of your morning. Uh, you can do whatever you need to do in the afternoon, whether it's go back to camp for a nap, um, you know, have a nap in the field and you'll know, call one spot and just lay down and have a nap or whatever and see if something shows up, whatever the case may be. Um, I like to go back and just work in reverse order. Um, so I'll do my calling at my best spot in the morning. Uh, and kind of the idea behind here is, you know, whatever spot I think is going to be the best spot to, to, to shoot a bull right off the bat. I want to be in that spot for the best hours because that's the time the moose is most likely going to be moving and and, uh, and not worried about being either too hot or too cold or, or exposing himself. So I'll start at those, the, the real, you know, best spot, move to the second best spot that I, that I want to call uh, based on my scouting. And we'll just kind of let the morning take, you know, take shape. And then by the evening, we'll, we'll usually go back to the, the second spot that we called or the, you know, third, whatever it was, and then just work our way back. But we'll always make sure that we'll, or that I'll, um, I'll get back to that, that best spot with at least an hour or so of good calling light so that if there is a bull close by that's that's showed up while i've been gone um i'm giving him enough time to show up before legal light runs out because right. that's kind of worst case ontario right does you show up and you call a bull and he's coming but you run out of legal and now you got to try to figure out how to get out of there without spooking him so yeah yeah that, that's kind of uh something um a few of my mentors always told me as well and especially going into a moose hunting area um they always kind of said don't call before you can shoot <laughs> because if you call something in and they take off then you you're for sure not shooting that moose yeah so when i say i like to be in in a spot like an hour before light um that's not calling like that's that's in where i want to be and i mean I, an hour is the goal it's rarely ever an hour i mean mm-hmm. uh we all think we can walk through the forest and pitch black without a headlamp on and and do that and you know get a half a mile in 10 minutes but it never happens like Usually we're showing up 10, 15 minutes before late. We're having at least, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Just kind of let the let the forest go back to being the forest and let the birds start chirping and all that stuff again. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so that there's a bit of a pause and a break um, in between all the human noise that I make getting in there. And then, you know, the time when I want to start calling and sounding like a moose. Yeah. I don't know about you, but for me, uh, the walk through the woods in the dark takes about twice as long as it does during the daylight. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why um, I think one of the points I maybe made in the article was, um, you know, figure out how long you think it's it's going to take you. And, and if there's a spot that, you know, hey, you got to rely on a bunch of flagging and trees or you have to turn left at the, the little rock, um, you know, leave those spots for after light. You maybe make that your second spot until the, at least until you know the area a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of use that to just just plan ahead for that and, and try not to waste too much time dinking around in the dark and uh, you know get in be as quiet as you can get in get set up do your calling and so that the really the idea is just to maximize the amount of time you get when you're actually hunting as opposed to just bumble fucking around in the woods yeah yeah totally yeah. i got a 
quick one here for you, Nate, is, um, and this is question might be a little bit long winded, but I'm going to try to set it up properly. But like when you are in a spot and, uh, it's not productive, let's say you've been there for a couple of times or, you know, whatever it may be, do you ever, and I know we've already kind of, you've already kind of talked about like keeping your human scent, noise, pollution, blah, blah, blah down. But do you ever go and check those, like, let's say, um, like lake shores or wherever you're hunting to see if there is some sort of track that came yep. while you weren't there? Like, do you ever try to kind of scout that way as well while you're there? Yeah, yeah, I will. Um, you know, actually, it's it's one of those things where I'll give you an example. Uh, and the hunt we did last year, um, we'd found a spot that we thought was really good. Um, turns out the winds were kind of messing us up, we think. And, um, you know, we're, it was a really good place. Like there's lots of rut pits. There was some, some wallows, some mineral licks and some just really awesome moose sign, like fresh hair and stuff like that, uh, fresh rubs. And we were calling that place for two, three days and just never saw, never saw a moose. And we were kind of figuring the winds were giving us up there swirling and we were maybe losing, you know, we, we were pretty sure we had an animal coming in the one day. And, uh, after about three days, we decided, you know what, we got to just get out of here and give this place a rest. So we decided like, if we're going to burn it, let's just burn it. And we're going to go for a little walk down this cut line. We're going to look around, we're going to see where we think they're coming from. And it, it turns out we ended up finding like two more giant wallows and uh, just immediate or uh, rut pits and, and licks and stuff like that. And that just immediately just kind of flipped the switch for us of like, okay, yeah, there's another place to hunt this. So we're going to go all the way around. We're going to give it a break for a couple of days. And then we're going to go all the way around. And in two days, if we still have tags, we're going to come in at this thing from like, you know, the total other side of that valley and hunt it with a different wind, or at least with the wind in our face, as opposed to crosswind. And that's actually the spot where I killed my bull. So nice. So yeah, it, it was definitely one of those, like you say, Sheldon, you know, Hey, yeah, we've been here a few days. Let's just have a look around and see if this is as good as we think. And then we did that and we actually ended up finding a, a better a better way to hunt that place. Right on. Now we, we've been talking about, you know, hunting spots and, and swamps and, and all this sort of stuff. And for those people listening that, that maybe haven't been on too many moose hunts or maybe haven't moose hunted at all. Um, I want you to, to do a little bit of visual storytelling here. We'll call this and, and kind of like, when you're thinking about a couple of the, let's say the, a few ideal moose hunting locations that you've been to in the past, spots where you would have set up to call, what do those look like? Where are you, where are you setting up and where are you calling from? All right. Um, so there's two that really come to mind because I know I've killed bulls there. So those are the two <laughs> I'll picture. Um, you know, one of the ones, and honestly, I really love inlets and outlets of lakes. Um, so if you get into that sort of swampy, end of a lake where it's either starts getting all beaver dammy and aldery and willowy like those places i think are real gold mines for moose calling and because for two reasons really because you're at the end of a lake and usually you can get a bit of a an open area where you can draw a bull out and hopefully you'll have still some open area uh to see and get a shot um if you can draw that bull out of the out of the darker timber so you can kind of camp out at the end of a lake or at the start of a, uh, a stream um, those are, those are really good places. So I'm looking for alders and willows and, um, right. So kinda... I'm, I'm going to stop you there. Sure. You find the ideal spot. Yep. Where do you set up? How do you approach it? Um, say you're not in a boat and you're going to try and find something on the sure. land. What do you, what do you look for and how do you get in there? 
Well, what I'm really going to look for is is kind of what it, what direction I expect the winds to blow from mostly. Um, so that's that's what I'm going to do, and I, I'm going to try to set up so that any bull coming out of the big deep dark timber or wherever the spot I think he's coming from, uh, he's going to most likely try to circle downwind of me at some point. They don't always. They sometimes if they're hot and heavy, they'll come right in at you. Um, but they're most likely going to try to circle you and, and get downwind to see what they're they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're bull grunting too, and you're trying to make a bunch of bull noises. Um, if you're doing that sort of stuff too, a lot of the times they want to see if this is the guy that kicked my ass last week, or, um, you know, is this a guy I can push around? And so they're just a little more, sometimes a little more cautious. Uh, so I want to make sure I'm setting up so that my wind is blowing, uh, towards an opening or at least in a spot where, um, to circle me and get downwind to me, a bull has to show himself where I can, where I can shoot him. I can't cover everything. You're never going to be a hundred percent and not have an area where you're winding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to kind of cross your fingers and hope that that, that bull, um, the, what you want to do is you want to try to figure out where you think he's coming from. And that's, I think a, a point I, I hit on in the article is think about the area you think he's coming from. If you think he's coming from up the Creek somewhere, um, you want to set up with the wind that's going to actually not be blowing your scent right across that area where he's coming from. You want to try to have it blowing out across the lake or somewhere that's a little safer uh, so that as he comes down that creek or as he comes out of the bush, just try to circle you along the edge of the lake. He's, he's going to have to show himself. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Well, I'll, I'll let you carry on to, to option two. <laughs> so option two is, um, yeah, so so moving away from kind of a lake, um, option two is kind of like the, the spot I was describing a little bit earlier is um, maybe not as much open area, but there's a few cut blocks around, um, some old growth timber that the bulls are going to kind of hang up in during the day. And um, the spot that we had found last year, like I mentioned, is um, we found these new, these new licks. And it was just one of these like kind of perfect little spots for everything I talked about at the start of here. Like, you know, there's an old burn close by, there's some cut blocks, there's a wetland that's got lots of little drainages that feeds down along the bottom of this valley. So on one side, you've got a burn on the other side, you've got some cut blocks that are about 10 years old. And in the middle, you got this Creek. That's not really a Creek. It's just kind of a series of wetlands. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's just a nice, beautiful old seismic line that runs right through the middle of it all. And, and and kind of cuts it in half so that you can walk from one side of this valley to the other on a seismic line. And in the middle of that, where that Creek is, there's just the mother of all licks. <laughs> and so, or uh, rut pits, licks, whatever you want to call them. Like they kind of, there was everything using, using this place like elk, moose, deer, whatever. Um, and so you just know that there's, there's bulls in that area. And then kind of in that area, there's little kind of open fens and marshes and stuff like that, where you can, Again, realize you don't have to be right on that lick. You can just go and set up in one of those little openings with the wind is where the wind is right, so that the bull has to expose himself to circle you. And you just you start calling. You just sound like a cow or sound like a bull, whatever you want to do, and uh, just kind of pick your poison and hope he hope he shows up. And we got really lucky. We I think we must have chased a cow off this one. And uh, as we we're backing out and kind of coming back up to have a little break, uh, you know, we were we were making little cow calls a little just kind of those sort of soft cow mews that they make when they're either you know talking to a bull or they're looking for a calf or whatever and so we heard a bull start grunting right away right you know 100 yards away from us and came crashing through the trees at us and you know that was one of those examples where he just came right at us he didn't care about wind mm-hmm. and uh, he was obviously looking for his lost cow that we kind of chased off so yeah yeah nice. 
before we get into like maybe calling and some other stuff where Chase wants to go up, I just want to maybe interject and talk about um, like scents or decoys or anything. Like, do you use any of that stuff? Um, like scent sticks? Like, what what do you tend to use? Yeah, we will. Um, I will use. Uh, I don't know who makes them. I think they're tinks or something like that, right? Like, I uh, some people would argue that this stuff doesn't work, and uh, I've I've tried it. I think it does actually help. Um, just to have a bit of a bit of a scent i'll use those like they look like incense sticks and they're just like this smoke and rot sticks or whatever the heck you call them. and uh, i'll usually only use them you know if i know the area around there is pretty wet like if i can set it out right in the middle of a wetland or the middle of a um uh, a rut pitch or something like that where it's it's not going to burn the forest down but uh, i find just you know I, I have one really good example of that where just leaving that little bit of scent behind when we left at the end of the day and coming back that next morning um we had done that we had burned a, a stick that we left for the night boat access place we came back the next morning right there 100 yards downwind to where we had left that stick there was a bull standing there waiting for us hmm. and, you know as we showed up in the boat the next morning you know my brother-in-law hopped out and got to shore and we hopped out and shot him so nice. I, I personally believe that they help um anything that holds a bull in that area for an extra half an hour an hour two hours whatever like you know the the way I believe this all works is that if you if you're calling these spots and then returning to them, that bull might not come there. He might not get there right away. He might take five, six, seven hours to get to you, especially if it's warm out or you know whatever. Um, he might not even decide to come and head your way until dark, um, but he'll probably loiter around for a few hours in the in the evening or in the next morning, looking for that cow that he heard making all that noise, and and that's really what you're trying to take advantage of is not necessarily calling that bull in the first time but just knowing that he'll be there waiting for you the next time you go back yeah that's kind of one of the one of the tactics we tried employing on our most recent moose hunting trip here is um we were kind of getting towards the end end of the days there and we heading down river we'd stop and call for about you know half an hour an hour kind of thing and we set a scent stick up and and we did that at about uh, four or five different spots throughout the day and we thought maybe on the way back something would be held up on shore on that scent stick but or or at least you know um catch a fresh set of tracks coming across there yeah. too yeah. so unfortunately yeah. it didn't work out for us so <laughs> yeah and, and that's the thing about it is i mean it, in those low density areas it is a low odds thing right like you're you're hoping to call that one bull that might be in that 10 square mile area you know or more um so that's why i think just having all those little strategies that kind of stack the odds in your favor just a little bit more mm-hmm. um because you might only, like I said, you might only see one bull. Um, you might only get that one set of res- that one bull to respond, or kind of kind of thing. So, yeah, anything yeah. you can do that increases your chance of having that encounter is good. I use um, scent sticks quite a bit moose hunting. I've started using them deer hunting a little bit too. But I even have this theory in my mind: if it's wrong or right, I don't know. And like like you said, a lot of people say, "Oh yeah, it's bullshit. That shit doesn't work." But like even if I'm sitting, like in a few spots at this one moose camp, I go to a bull can literally come from just about anywhere. So I usually light one and set it up close to myself just in case something, you know, either tries to win me and it can maybe, you know, cover up my own personal scent a little bit too. So I do use it that way as well. Um, But yeah, same thing. We'll set one up, you know, in the middle of a slough or whatever as well too. But yeah, I, I I use them quite often just to see if it covers up my scent. I don't know if it works, but I I don't think that alone is ever going to bring in a bull for you, but um, yeah. You know, like you say, I think sometimes you can use them as a bit of a, a way to intercept an animal that might otherwise wind you. So 
you know, set it out a hundred yards down the line, just because you know he's hopefully coming from that direction. Maybe he'll hit that scent and, and show himself before he caught, crosses your scent trail. You know, that's another way to kind of look at it. What about decoys? Have you ever tried using decoys or? You know, I haven't. And that's just, that's mostly because um, I haven't done a lot of moose hunting in areas where I was going to be shooting very far. Um, I think if, if you were going to be hunting in a lot of really big open cut blocks, um, that would be, and I know guys that have done it. Um, I know guys that just wear a black hoodie or something like that. Right. Um, so I, I know it does. I think it, there is a time and a place for it for sure. Um, Alberta, you don't have to wear orange. Um, so I do know of, of people that will, they'll just basically dress like a moose and, you know, they might stand on the edge of the cut block and do their calling hmm. sequence there. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's questionable if that's what I would want to do, but bit of a bullet magnet but uh but that's that's a question or that's a debate for another another day pro tip for when you're hunting alberta pick up one of our black goose hoodies before you go out moose hunting (laughs) yeah there you go it's uh it's actually been tried and true oh actually i think is a signature hoodie one of my buddies out in alberta uh shot a really nice bull a few years ago and was wearing that hoodie so perfect there you go yeah um i kind of want to chat a little bit of calling tactics with you um, this is kind of another thing I found talking to a few old timers, you know, you, you get a few different answers across the board, um, how often you should call, what calls you should be using and, and all that. I know, I know one guy that would pretty much call till his vocal cords were shredded and then throughout the entire day. And, and that, that was just the way he, he hunted and he ended up, you know, killing moose. But, uh, what, what do you find works best for you? Um, in, in my experience, I try not to overcall. Um, I, that's one of the things I think I also kind of hit on is, um, you know, just, it's just the way that moose are set up and this is just my belief and kind of, you know, the way I've seen it in my few years of doing this. Um, but you know, the way moose are set up is they're, they're designed to hear you from quite a ways away. And, uh, you know, they've got those big radar dishes on their, on their heads. Um, so a, a bull is is going to have a pretty good idea if he can hear your call from a couple miles away already he's going to have a pretty good idea where you are so you don't need to make more noise than you absolutely have to now if he's not calling back and you can't hear him you know you can make the debate that calling lots is better because um you know it'll keep him coming even if he if he stops or hangs up or something like that sure yeah i, I could see that but for me at least um i'd rather be listening than calling uh, so I'll, I'll do you know 10 you know, I'll space out like, you know, a 30 second burst of calls and I'll wait a couple of minutes and I'll do a, a few more and I'll wait a couple of minutes. I'll do a few more. I'll go that I'll, I'll do that for 10 minutes or so when I first get to the place and, and then I'll give it a 15 minute break of just in silence and just listen, you know, listening for twig snap branches, breaking uh, brush being raked bull grunts. Cause you know, we've all heard bull grunts that aren't bull grunts. And, <laughs> you know, sometimes we hear bull grunts that we don't think are bull grunts until they show up and there's a bull standing there. Right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I would prefer to be listening uh, for at least, you know, a good 10, 15 minutes and then I'll, I'll, I'll bust back into a set of calling. That's gotta be one of the best, like other than harvesting a moose, in my opinion, one of the coolest or best feelings is when you get a response from a bull oh, or sure. whatever. And you're just like, but the thing is, is you sit there and you hear something you're like, is that a fucking bull or not? You're like, no. And then all of a sudden it goes again. You're like, that was definitely yeah, a bull. Definitely and then like, all of a sudden it's like going all crazy, right? Like heart starts pounding, and then you start wondering what the hell are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's a cool feeling right off the bat. I feel like sure. you're in the scene of the office there. 
Don't yeah. panic. Nobody panic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. And, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the things I think I, I tried to mention in the article is the idea of having that plan made is it so when that moment does happen, you know, with, you know, kind of what to do, you know, you have an idea of what your plan is and where you hope the bowl to show up. And mm-hmm. if, he do, if he follows the plan, then you look like a genius. Yeah. And if he doesn't yeah. follow the plan, well, you've already kind of thought it out enough and your wheels are spinning and you kind of know what, you know, maybe plan B should be. Yeah. Yeah. Then the other thing that I would like to point out too, for anybody that's listening, that might be planning a moose hunt is like, if you're sitting there calling and listening and you hear a stick break or something like 99% of the time, it's going to be some sort of larger animal, whatever. Like, it's not like when you're deer hunting and you hear some, you know, leaves rustle in the bush and you're like, Oh, is that a buck? And then it turns out to be a squirrel. And like in the north, like that doesn't normally happen, not to me. So a lot of times, like when you hear that stick break, you're like, hmm, that's got to be something coming, you know, or whatever. Like there's not too, when you're, when you're sitting there calling and you're listening and listening, listening, you don't hear anything forever. And then you finally hear one or two stick breaks. Well, I think you're, you're working on the right trail there. And for a big animal, they can be so quiet. So quiet. You know, you know like you're, if you're used to hunting elk or something like that, I'm not a great elk hunter, but. You know, you're used to hunting elk. They're kind of, you know, they're the bull in the china shop, right? They make a lot of noise. But, man, it's amazing how quietly a bull moose can sneak up on you. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I, I think, you know, you were just talking about um, making the plan uh, with your partner there and all that, even if it's just with yourself. But um, if you're going out hunting with a partner, one thing that we we kind of screwed up on this this past fall too was, um, just poor communication of what kind of procedures yeah. we're supposed to go down when when shit was actually happening. What does this mean? Yeah. <laughs> what did the frantic hand signals mean? Yeah, yeah. and uh, and yeah, so things kind of went sideways there for us. Um, I mean, uh, the bull kind of caught us off guard to begin with, but uh, um, we we certainly weren't following any sort of code yeah. of moose hunting you know <laughs> kind yeah, of no, that, kind that's sideways, a great so. tip and, yeah that's a great tip and that's actually something i don't think i did mention but you know have that if you're hunting with a partner or partners you know kind of have that set out for sure like it's still yeah like everything goes to shit real fast when everybody's general adrenaline's pumping and you're you're trying to figure out who's going to shoot and where it's coming from and all this and that so. yeah yeah so set out some rules uh kind of discuss how how that situation would go down. Like, are you going to be quiet? Are you going to move? Are you going to have to set up? Are you, you know, what's going to happen? Who's going to call and who's going to be pulling the trigger and and all that kind of stuff. So, Uh, and that's a good point. I I didn't get too into it in the, uh, in the article because I was kind of just being general about it. But, you know, if you, if you do have a partner, you know, think about setting that person up a hundred yards downwind to you, Um, you know, as if you both have tags, um, or maybe that moose is going to circle and you won't see them, you know, or if you have a blind spot and you really think it's a good place, you know, this, this moose might come through this little blind spot here, uh, when he's trying to circle us. Well, you know, go set, go set your buddy down in that draw. He might not be able to see much, but he might have a bull walk right up on him that mm-hmm. you've never seen before. Yeah. Um, is there, is there anything else that you toss in the pack that assists you in, in the hunt? You think that that kind of helps you out? We've used, uh, or I've used uh, birch bark moose calls, you know, like the pretty standard, everybody's seen them probably, just those birch bark homemade moose calls. Um, that's usually what I pack. Um, we'll bring uh, uh, like a shoulder blade from mm-hmm. an, uh, from a previous kill, like a bull or an elk or something like that, or a, a moose or an elk, sorry. 
so that's one just to rake some some branches because I think that's for me at least that sounds like the most natural thing to an antler raking a tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have a shoulder blade from an old bull, um, bring a small canoe paddle, you know, saw one in half, bring a small hockey stick, you know, something like that, just something to, or just break a stick off a tree and just have something to rake, uh, rake some trees with. If you feel like you're going to have to sound like a bull, a bull, uh, trying to intimidate another bull, yeah, you know, have that with you. It helps. Um, you know, just the, the small child size canoe paddles tuck into a backpack pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty light. I think they make some collapsible ones as well for kayaking <laughs> and stuff like that. So, um, yep. when would you roll out the the aggressive bull uh, calling routine? Let me let me interject here quick. Sure. I want to just before Chase answers or asks that question, is um, just to kind of break it down for anybody that's might be getting into moose hunting. The purpose of raking trees, and you kind of said it, you're you're kind of mimicking like an aggravated or angry bull challenging another bull. What does that look like? I mean, we talk a lot about calling and we always think like vocal calling, but raking trees is kind of like calling in itself too. Do you want to just kind of like, how, how, do, how do you do that? Like, how do you work that? What, what kind of trees are you raking? Um, all that stuff. Break it right yeah, down. It's, you know, it, it can be whatever you want it to be, to be honest with you. Um, if you've got a shoulder blade or a paddle with you, um, usually I'm wearing a set of leather gloves. That's kind of the first most important thing to think about is protect your hands because you will shred your hands. Um, but, you know, pick a pick a small spruce tree. Like moose don't, they don't walk up into an area and say, oh, I need a good, I need a good birch or a, you know, like they're not really paying that much attention to it. They're just going to pick the smallest tree or the closest tree to them and just kick the shit out of it, really. And, you know, I've... I'm kind of picky about it because when I do try to rake a tree, I try to sound like a bull. If you've ever seen them doing it, they're swinging their head kind of back and forth, side to side. They're not really doing, you know, when you're rattling for deer, you're kind of smashing things real quick. Like you want it to be big sweeping kind of rakes of, uh, you know, beat the shit out of a little spruce or a little birch or something like that. Um, and just take that paddle and just kind of rake it up and down like a big old bull. Just picture him sweeping his head side to side and up and down. And yeah, just to try to intimidate that other bull that may or may not be coming. Um, as far as when to break it out, that's uh, a good question. Honestly, I haven't figured out the perfect answer to that. I think I've, in my time, I've probably scared bulls off by doing it too soon. Um, I, I think it's just kind of a feel thing. If the moose are really hot and heavy, or if you think you got a bull that's really worked up, but he just doesn't want to show himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a little bit of a, a rake or something like that. Um, sometimes it's just a case of, hey, man, the, the, the cow calls on their own just aren't working. Let's try some bull, bull raking, see mm-hmm. what happens. See what happens, yeah, totally. Um, when you're when you're doing that raking too, like are you always trying to mimic a, a bigger bull than – like if you if you got an eye, eyes on like a, you know, a smaller bull, would you be raking as a big bull or are you trying to mimic the same oh. as him, smaller than him? What, what yeah, are you doing if I – knew kind of what i was dealing with or if i'd seen them or seen a flash of them i I would try to sound same size or smaller you know uh, i want him ideally what i want him to do is to come kick my ass yeah uh chase me off that cow that that i'm trying to protect or trying to walk away from yeah you definitely don't want to mimic a big 60 inch when there's a little dinker around he'll push him off pretty quick hey yeah exactly and i think you just if you have that luxury then you want to try to sound smaller um yeah some bulls don't care i mean every bull i've shot in the middle of the rut has always had puncture wounds and stuff like that on his his flanks or in his ass and so you can kind of see like they're they're always fighting they're always pushing each other around sometimes they win sometimes they lose 
Yeah. Yeah. Tough animals, man. They are. Um, I'm curious on your are your thoughts around, you know, when, once you get an animal in and he's in kind of coming at the shooting range, do you have any hard lessons that, that uh, you can share with us? Obviously, it sounds like you've harvested quite a few more moose than I have, so <laughs> um, I'm all ears to it. But, uh, like, how do you feel about approaching um, the time to pull the trigger? Is there, obviously, broadside is, is kind of the ideal um, are you taking a frontal shot? Are you passing on a frontal shot or is there anything else that you can think of that, uh, you can pass on to our listeners? Yeah. Um, first, I guess I, I don't know it's that I've shot that many bulls. It's just that I'm kind of neurotic enough to obsess over it when I do screw something up. So. Um, but no, uh, um, when you do actually have one, I think the biggest thing you can, you can do, um, is try to stay still, you know, like before you see that bull, you should, if, if you can hear him coming and you can hear him crashing or, or grunting at you, you, you have a pretty good idea which direction he's coming. So get yourself set up and ready to shoot. Meow. Like have that gun up, have that sort of shooting lane you think he's going to hit and have that kind of picked out and ready to go. Don't wait until you see him. Don't wait until you see how big he is. Don't wait until you see, you know, the whites of his eyes. Because if you move once he's coming in, that's, sometimes that's all you get. He might just see that little bit of movement and know that it's unnatural or that maybe it's it feels too close and he's going to go. He might spin and go. And we had that this year uh, or this past year on that hunt. Um, 15 minutes before we called in that bull that I shot, uh, we had a separate bull. We called in a separate bull. And he he caught me. You know, he just caught me with my pants down kind of thing, diddle fucking around with my rifle. And I was caught in the open. I didn't really have a, a good branch to lean on. And I made the mistake of, of making too much noise and trying to grunt at him when he was too close. And in doing that, I gave away my position. And in doing that, he knew exactly where I was. And as soon as I moved to try to get my rifle up, when I did see him, he spun and took off because he knew right away that that wasn't a bull. Mm-hmm. So, so be ready is, is really the message there is just be ready to shoot. Um, and, and you know, if you have to do a little bit of a movement, you know, at least your gun's already up and you're kind of in the right spot. Yeah. It's the best advice I can give there, at least. Nice. Frontal shot. Um, I have taken frontal shots on moose. I've taken one, I think. And if you know where to put it, I think it works just fine. Um, if you're shooting, you know, any sort of suitable big game round uh, with rifle. For for archery, um, that's really just kind of up to you. I'm not sure on a moose. Uh, I know guys take them on elk pretty yeah. successfully. Yeah, be confident in, in what you're bringing out there. What are you uh, What are you toting around for rifle in moose territory? Probably ninety five percent of the animals I've shot have been with my two seventy win. No way. So, yeah, just no. a just a Tika T three and two seventy. Yeah. So nothing nothing over the top. Just put it in the right spot, hopefully, and and it usually does pretty well. Exactly. Yeah. Don't stop shooting either. That's probably the other advice I'd give on on moose is just yeah. You know, because they, they often are close to water or really ugly wet spots or, or mud holes, uh, just as long as they're wiggling, keep shooting. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of meat there if you, if you yeah. throw, throw a shell somewhere <laughs> you shouldn't have on them, it's usually okay. <laughs> Trust me, after about three or four hours of breaking a moose down, you'll be happy you ruined that extra five pounds of meat. Yeah. <laughs> the, other, the other thing that I would mention too, and I've, I I think, I, I mean, it's I think it's um pretty normal for everyone to make like to look for that perfect shot but the one thing that i noticed especially archery hunting moose is that they're so big 
and then they're behind some willows and you're almost thinking, Oh, is that a good shot? Just because they're so big. Like if I had any advice for anyone that was starting out, Moose, just make sure you have that good shot, like right in the engine room shot. Like I know it's a little bit bigger than a whitetail and stuff, but I've been in, in a few situations where Moose is coming through the willows and, you know, you can kind of see the top half of his body and you're like, Oh, I think that's good. But I, you know, just make sure that shot is there because it's yeah. uh, they're a big animal, right? And so. remember that they, they have that giant kind of hump. hump. Yeah. Um, and Absolutely. so, you know, what, what might seem like the middle of his chest might actually be closer to his spine. So yeah. that might work out for you, but it's probably not where, where you really want to be aiming. Um, the lungs and the heart are a little bit lower um, than what you think. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like when I'm comparing big game to big game, moose from stories that have been told to me are seem like they're more notorious for like hitting the dirt and then vanishing once you show up to the spot to check on them. So, um, kind of, I, I would agree with that I've heard quite a few different stories of, of that exact exact thing. You know. And I, I think that's that that's that spine thing, you know, like that that hump thing is that guys will maybe shoot a little too high and they'll they'll stun them and they'll drop and you think, Oh yeah, you know, sweet, pull down and you get up there and he's he's recovered and buggered off and yeah. You yeah, we we've uh the moose that my brother and I have, have shot have always been like, All right, let's get up there kinda of as fast as we can and assess the situation and we'll we'll celebrate after kind of thing once we know he's down and down and out so if there's uh, any suggestions from our end that would be it make sure he's down and then uh, yeah. do your celebrate any hope at all that he's still moving or twitching just put another one in him and... yeah or even like like you said you're if you're all set up for that shot you take the shot and he drops wait another 10 minutes just wait for uh you know to make sure it's all over yeah, just keep your eyes on him i know i've been in a situation where it's almost like a gray area slippery slope where we um we shot a bull and it didn't drop it ran back up into the bush but we knew we shot it like it was a good shot but we were you know so pumped up we went up after it and pushed it farther than we thought it would have went so it took us like hours to find it and um you know in in reality we after it was shot we knew it was shot we should have waited give it 20 minutes and then walked into like because we didn't have a visual on it right so you know it's that, that's what i mean like if you have a visual on it yeah get up to it right away maybe or, or like chase said wait 10 minutes before you start moving to keep your eyes on it, make sure it's not getting up but in this one scenario yeah we should have waited and we never we pushed them way back into the bush it was a, a really hard time getting that one out but that's yeah. a good point well this point in the story we got a moose down obviously we're all good moose hunters we're celebrating over top of the moose did we prepare properly to get that thing out of the bush you know, you're, you're looking at you're looking at something that's like on the hoof, probably close to a thousand, twelve hundred pounds. You're going to be hauling probably five, six hundred pounds of meat out of there with if you're taking bone in and some hide and plus the head and all kinds of stuff. It's a big animal to to get moving. It's a big animal to to move on the ground and field dress. Yep. Um, what kind of what kind of things are you packing around, and what kind of tips can you can you share with us just for let's start at the field dressing. Um, um, with field dressing for me, at least like the last, I want to say at least 10 years, uh, every moose I've shot, regardless of how close it's been to, to a road or whatever, um, they've all been, uh, quartered up using the, the gutless method. Um, so I don't know if you really wanted to, to get too much into that right now, but, um, there's lots of YouTube videos that kind of describe how that process works. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody can find them. They're, they're, it, 
they're pretty pretty easy to find uh, tons of information um basically you're just you're removing all four quarters of the animal and then you're taking the back straps from the outside you're taking every every bit of usable meat that you want off the outside of the animal uh on one side then you'll flip it over uh skin out the other side and take off the other two quarters and then last thing you do is you kind of dive in there and find the the uh, tenderloins um right at the end kind of thing when you're done and and some people you know if you want the heart and liver and stuff like that people will go diving after that and ribs and whatnot but um but that's the way i've done most of the moose that i've that i've shot in the last probably 10 years um so with four or five animals i guess four yeah four animals and uh it's great honestly like i don't know if i would go back to trying to to hoof around a bunch of whole hair on moose quarters um <laughs> or or halves or or whole animals uh, very first moose I shot, we we skidded them out of the bush behind a quad, hooked them up tandem to keep the front end of the one quad down. We skidded that thing probably six miles, Jeez. and we got them back to the to where my buddy's farmyard and front end loader were. We lifted him up. He was bare on one side, and he would sticks jamming out of every possible place. And yeah. and he you know he partially cooked himself. Like I, I actually lost meat on that on that moose because it was warm enough that we just didn't get the hide off soon enough. And I think that's the biggest thing to, to think about is once you have that animal down, pay attention to what your weather's doing. Um, if, if it's hot, you've got to get that, uh, that hide off like now, cause a, especially a, a good sized bull moose, like that shoulder, the, the chuck and kind of neck, you know, that that's the first thing that'll go sour on you. And then the inside of the legs and hips and stuff like mm-hmm. that will be the second thing. So it's really important if it's warmer weather to get that, the hide off that animal as fast as possible. So what I'll, I'll carry with me is anywhere I go, whether it's a quad hunt, boat hunt, whatever, I've got a backpack and I usually, usually have um, probably six to eight game bags, um, full-size game bags with me, because once I pull that hide off, you know, I want to protect that meat and keep it from getting dirty. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll slap it right into a game bag. And, you know, once that quarter comes off, it's into a game bag and tied up and there's no leaves or, or dirt or, or hair or, moose piss or whatever you want you know that's that's hopefully going to touch that yeah um that hide on the front quarters and the neck and and including like i mean the fur is generally thicker in that area but the hide's mm-hmm. got to be thicker as well because that's where a lot of the they take a lot of the force from scrapping and stuff like that right yeah, so that's why that. a lot of that heat stays in there spoils yeah. faster yeah so that's that's the big thing is no matter how you're getting up getting it out is just try to get that hide off and get that meat cooling. If you're lucky and you have some really cool evenings or, or, or the weather's pretty cold, you have a little bit more time, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for the, for the type of hunting I've done mostly lately, we've been carrying quarters at least partway back to a vehicle yeah, or an ATV. And that's just the easiest thing to get on a pack on a frame and, you know, you can carry that and and get her back to the quads and then skid her out from there. Yeah. And I think like if we're, if we're weighing out a hind quarter here, and skin on to skin off you're probably dropping man it's got to be 20 pounds yeah close to if like if if the if the hair's dry if you got a wet moose you're you're looking at even more on that yeah the other thing i was going to mention too is it and it's kind of circling back to the e-scouting um in the weather and stuff like that and and like i kind of said earlier in the podcast if you find a moose way back where and it's like plus three or four out you know that's it may be a decision that you might have to make is like if i got you know three or four hours of packing this thing out and it's plus 10 out or plus three or plus two maybe you don't want to shoot it back there and i mean it might not it might be a super tough decision to make but it's something to think about when you're e-scouting as well it's like if we're gonna hunt this way this area way back here we gotta it's gotta be good weather to get it out too right 
which people I don't I don't think people think about that sometimes, you know. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, Chase, like you guys shot that uh, you and Tristan shot that moose at our camp there. It was way back in there. Good thing it was, you know, snowy and cold out or so would have took us. Yeah. You know, it, we would have risked probably losing some meat, you know, because yeah. that was a way back in there. Yeah, that was a ways. Um and it's funny funny you say that. I was just thinking about that moose too because um, I don't know if we would have been able to make it up, but if we got on top of those rapids where that moose was and kind of paralleled it, that, that little trip over the ridge would have been a lot shorter than actually going up the swamp. So that, that right there is, yeah. is, uh, a testament to having some good e-scouting in and having those maps on hand as well. That's a good point. Seeing where yeah. you can go. Great point. I mean, know your limitations, both your own physical limitations and then kind of the limitations of how fast you can get an animal out once you do get it down. And that that's something that you definitely have to consider when you're when you're making your, your hunting plans and stuff like that for sure. Yeah. We've had elk meat spoil on us at like minus ten before neck meat. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. even if it when it's cold out, you're not out of the woodworks if you're not yeah. cooling that meat properly. And and really the best thing you can do to buy yourself some time is to get that up get that uh, the meat off the hide off the meat and then the meat off the carcass get some air to it start getting it cooling um and then if you have to leave it for a while don't pile it on top of it of itself you know don't don't make giant piles of meat hang it you know from a tree in the shade somewhere if you can keep the direct even if it's you know in that sort of 15 to 20 degree range you can kind of get some pretty good cooling in the shade uh done just by hanging it you know kind of individually if it's mm-hmm. really that warm you might have to think about taking the bones out yeah um, just getting those those big thick bones out yeah um a couple things you know <laughs> we we've we've hunted some first moose hunt I, I i went on um it was probably around that five to seven degrees out and we hung moose for a couple of days in that but you know you got that nice hard bark on the outside of it the skin was off off of everything and um from what i have heard I'm not a meat scientist or anything, but that, like, like you said, getting that skin off and getting that initial temperature drop is yep. one of the most important things for just sure. preventing that bone rot happening. Sure. Um, so we got game bags. You said you got game bags. What else you got uh, in your pack for, uh, retrieving um, an animal, gotten an animal? I guess, I guess it depends on how much weight, extra weight you're willing to carry around with you every day. Um, you know, you can, you can break a moose down with a havel on if you really want to. Um, you know, that's about all you need, maybe some paracord. Uh, I'll usually have maybe 15, 20 meters of like really light paracord with me for tying game bags up or for hanging meat in, in trees or something like that, if I need to, or even for putting a tarp up over meat, if I've got to leave it for a while, just to get some shade. Um, so some paracord, uh, I'll, I'll usually have a couple good knives. I'll always have a knife sharpener with me. So like I'll, I carry a Havilon for stuff like caping or, or some, some more kind of the, the detail work. Um, because you've got a, a, some disposable blades, but, um, I've used Leatherman before, like I've had a Leatherman that, you know, like I'll sharpen that up and the serrated, the serrated blades and the, the regular jackknife kind of blade, you know, pocket sharpener kind of thing. You can touch that up real fast if you need to. Um, and, and usually, you know, I'll, I'll carry one knife and, and, uh, I always have a Leatherman with me and then, um, and a Havilon and then a bunch of gloves, to be honest, just to try to keep my grubby hands off the important stuff. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, that's for, for kill kits. That's really, that's really it. Some guys will bring a hatchet, but you know, you can break a moose down without a hatchet. You don't, you don't need a, an ax or anything like that to break them apart. Uh, you can do all that with a knife. Um, 
Yeah, once once you figure out the kind of the the anatomy of like when you're removing, I I, I guess the like the the hindquarters probably the biggest obstacle for a lot of folks how to pop that joint out and you almost just let it fall. Yeah, when, if you, if bone you, weight kind of pops it out once you once you figure it out. Yeah, just work your way along that bone, and then and then it just kind of comes right out. So, um, besides that, if you're doing that that meat or that uh, gutless method, you know that's kind of the only kind of obstacle I can think about. Yeah, I might throw a I might have like a couple clean ziplocs in my bag too, just to to throw stuff like my tenderloins in, um, mm. because you don't want those drying out really in your game. They're easy to lose for one in uh, in a game bag full of neck meat, um, but then. Uh, they dry out really fast as well. So I think just having sometimes a Ziploc handy will keep those from drying out too much on you. Yeah. One thing I kind of wanted to touch on too is like uh, you were talking about hanging the meat. And uh, if, if you're in an area that is, is maybe not favorable to hang some meat, maybe it's just small black spruce or something or an old burn that is not really, doesn't have a lot of great trees to hang from. Um, you can also kind of make a bit of a, a rack or like a, yeah. or just a raised kind get of a uh, platform out of trees yep to keep that get it up off the ground and get some air circulating around it yeah try to keep the direct sunlight off it too so if you have a tarp you know like a yeast even a little backpack sill tarp um that you could set up on a little tripod just to keep the direct sun off it yeah that helps too good tip and then i guess uh packing out what do you what kind just wait, of just wait, just wait, Chase. Oh, all right. Sorry, all one right. more. Whoa. So, uh, so you're, you've gutted your moose, you've got all your meat. Is there like a tradition you guys have, you and your buddies? Is there like um, a certain cut of meat you guys might save, or maybe, you know, when you get back to camp, you're going to have a drink, celebratory drink? Is there anything like traditional wise once you harvest the moose? Uh, the, the hunts I've been on, it's, it's pretty rare that both tenderloins make it back to town. So, uh, you know, you, whether it's back at the cabin or back at the tent or whatever, you know, like we'll, we'll, probably grill up a tenderloin that night um nice. uh this my my one hunting buddy that I, I was out with in alberta this year his thing is can't remember what it was called but he he's a he's a big rusty nail guy so he'll mix up a, a rusty nail and and we'll we'll pound a couple of those while we're recovering in the tent oh, nice. scotch and drum beauty yeah there you go he's uh that that's his thing so the, so i, I kind of came to enjoy that this year that was a, that was fun nice right on all right. Well, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious what you have for, uh, I guess, a pack setup and um, any tips on packing out a, a hindquarter of a moose. Sure. Um, I, I've used a bunch of different packs over the years, um, kind of experimented with a few different makes and stuff like that. Um, the pack I'm, the packs I've been using the last few years, uh, they're made by a company called Stone Glacier. Um, ultralight backpacking packs, they're really, really good Um solidly built packs um they can you you can kind of from the frames uh you can switch the bags in and out so you can kind of uh, get a day pack type bag if you want or you can have a full-on backpacking you know six or seven thousand cubic inch uh back uh, bag for for a full-on backpack trip so that's really nice um they're very modular and they can um lots of ways to attach uh heads and and quarters um they come with a nice little load shelf so um you know, whatever you decide to use, um, try to have yourself a pack that's that's comfortable and fits you right. Um, you know, you want that that weight to be kind of riding on your hips is what you're looking to do. Uh, you don't necessarily want it hanging on your shoulders. That's just a recipe for misery. Um, so, so get a pack that fits you. Don't just grab your dad's old pack off the shelf and from the 70s and, and think that that, you know, it'll work, but 
you know, you might suffer a little bit from it. Um, <laughs> if you think you might be packing quarters out and get yourself whatever pack you want to use, uh, load it up, you know, get a bag of dog kibble or something like that and throw that in that pack, learn how to load it uh, before you actually go out and do the hunt. Um, so just, just learn how to, how you're going to strap a, a 50 pound or, a, you know, 75 or hundred pound moose quarter into it. Mm-hmm. Um, figure that out. Um, you generally want to try to keep that weight as high on your back as you can. And, but you want the load to actually be transferred into that frame and then onto your hips. Yeah. And that's kind of where you want to carry that weight. So, so that's, that's what I do. Uh, any, any good frame pack will do, um, as long as it fits you properly. Yeah. You want to have that sucker on there nice and snug as well. You don't want it bouncing around and, and exactly. kind of shifting weight on you as you're traversing the, the forest. Um, man, it just kind of got me thinking about how, uh, how tough the old fellows were back in the day, rocking those old frame packs that would just dig into your hips. <laughs> With wooden metal frames and like leather straps. and Yeah. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Unbelievable. I'm a baby. I'm a baby. I get... I get sore just, you know, carrying 20 pounds around all day. Yeah. Oh, I know. Um, elk hunting or whitetail hunting, you know, I, I I don't carry a heavy pack by any means, but I got like a, a horn hunter that I was usually toting around most of the time and it's packed with a few things, whatever knife, um, kind of just day pack stuff. And you take that sucker off at the end of the day, like, or for a break even, you're like, oh, I don't want to put that back on. There's no way. <laughs> yeah and, and that's where it kind of goes all the way back to your your one of your first couple of questions of getting in shape for this sort of stuff and um the more you kind of lunges and squats and that sort of core strength and lower body strength that you can build um it'll help it'll really help when it comes to this sort of stuff and packing out quarters a mile or so stepping mm-hmm. over blowdowns and you know that's where that work really pays off is when you actually have that that moose quarter in the pack so yeah Shelly, you got any more questions on the uh, on the hunting front here? Um, not really. I, I, you know, it makes it really makes me think about the types of hunting that Nathan does when it comes to uh, moose hunting and the way I do things. It, um, the backcountry moose hunting thing would, I think, would be a, a long time in the making for me to be into a good, you know, a good shape to get back there and, and do all this stuff. It really makes you think of how out of shape I am right now. So. Oh, no. No, I'm, I'm fooling you here. If I were to p- tilt my screen down so you could see my belly, you'd probably uh, feel a lot better about things because, you know, you don't have to be in great shape. You just have to kind of, you know, have a good plan for getting it out and the right tools. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. I'll I'll give you a, a little window into what getting old for me is feeling like right now. And over the past few weeks, I, I haven't worked out for I don't know how long, but now I, I've somehow acquired this foot injury that I don't even know how it happened. And now I'm dealing with it over the last few weeks, going to the physio, chiropractor, acupuncture, all kinds of stuff. And it just doesn't seem to be going away. So I don't know. Hopefully by fall, I'll be able to uh, strap on the hunting boots and hike some miles. But uh, doctor's yeah. orders are to rest it up as much as possible right now. I, I wish I could say it gets better once you get into your 40s. But <laughs> <laughs> And fan, the phantom things that show up. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, I'm curious. You also do a little bit of photography stuff. And uh, I've seen in, in one of your photos, you're toting around a Sony. What what kind of uh, gear you haul with you for that? Um, right now, I am running a couple of Sony cameras. So I've got one that I use mostly for for photography. Um, so like, like they'll try to 
use for most of my stills. Um, so that's a Sony A7R3, or R4, sorry. Um, yeah, re- pretty good camera. It's, it's, it's been really good. I've enjoyed having it. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy what some of these modern cameras can do. Like I, I, I came at this from almost, you know, completely inexperienced about three years ago, maybe is when I started. And, uh, um, just, just the stuff that those cameras can do compared to when I was a kid and I used to play with it a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. it's insane. Uh, so I do that and I got kind of an assortment of lenses and then for, uh, I'm trying to get better at, at doing some video stuff and, uh, hopefully get into some video work eventually. Um, and I have a, so a Sony a7S3, I believe is the, the video camera or the, the mirrorless, uh, Sony camera that I'm using mostly for video. Nice. When I, when I get the guns. Yeah. I just so, picked yeah, up. And then just kind of an assortment of lenses that can kind of go back and forth between the two. Nice. I just picked up an S3 as well. And it's a big step up from, from what we've had. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You get lost um, in those option menus pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, there's, a, there's a learning curve for sure. And that's, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed about picking up the photography in the last few years is, you know, trying to, trying to turn it into a side gig and, and a way to get an excuse to get out more and to do more of these really fun adventure kind of hunts, like the mountain hunting thing. Yeah. Um, to, to, to use that as a way to do that. And uh, I, I've loved every minute of it. It's been a blast. So. Nice. Do you have a favorite lens that you towed around? Uh, uh, I've got a 2.8, 24 to 70 Sony, uh, G that's, uh, it's really good. I mean, that's probably the best all around lens I have and probably what takes about 80% of my photos when nice. I'm, when I'm hunting at least. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for, for stuff like trying to set up on a little bit longer, longer range, I have a, a 100 to 400, um, 5.6 that that's pretty good. Yeah. And, but yeah, no, the, probably that 24 to 70 is the. So yeah, 24 to 70 is probably the one that's making the money right now. Sees the most action right on. Yep. Well, that's awesome. Uh, Shelly, unless you got anything else, buddy, I think we should wrap this one up. Yeah, for sure. I just, you know, a few things that I want to say, kind of sitting back and listening to to Nathan talk here about moose hunting. And I think uh, all three of us behind the mics here can, can easily say that we're not professional moose hunters by any means, but we do have, you know, some tips and tricks and, the thing that I always think about when we get into these conversations is that I have people in my group of friends and family that are like religiously moose hunters. Like they hunt every year. They've shot 30, like over 30 moose. And they always say the same thing to me when I ask them for stuff is like tactics or tricks and stuff is they always say like, I don't know, it always changes. Like you'll, you'll never know with moose hunting and they're very hard to predict. They're very hard to, you know, do certain things. And every time you think you got them figured out, they're going to, you know, they're going to swing the other way and go the other way, you know? So anybody that's listening, I mean, everything that we've said tonight, I mean, it's what we've, we've experienced. And, and I'm in my mind, I like guess, as, as a moose hunter myself, in my mind, I don't think there is a professional moose hunter. There's some guys that are really close, maybe like Jim Shockey and these guys that are good moose hunters. But I think if you ask them that same question, it's, uh, well, maybe not Jim Shockey. He, he pretty much thinks he knows everything. So <laughs> Just kidding, Jim. Just kidding. <laughs> I think I think you know when you when you look back at some of these uh, um, higher profile hunts, and you know you look at some of the even one of the latest meat eater episodes where Steve is up in some of the moosiest country in British Columbia and can spend a week up there and still come home em- empty handed. You know, it's it's like you said, it's clearly a game of hit and miss sometimes you're not always on them sometimes you're rating them and they got them 
you got them charging right towards you like like yeah you said you do once in a while there nate yeah it's uh, i just echo what what shelton said like you know it, it really is um they they can frustrate the hell out of you sometimes um and probably the biggest take home that i would ask people to take from that article when when they read it is uh just be patient you know like take take some of the tips that we're giving you here and and use those and apply those when you go hunting but man just be patient and realize that uh, some days you're just going to want to hit your head against a rock and be be done with it but you know eventually it will turn and all of a sudden there'll be moose everywhere and they're calling in there you know it's it's great but um yeah there's there's no one way to do this that's that's for sure right on yeah for sure and that's like one more thing there too is um you know i i talking with with moose hunting people and they they've been in like the best spots the best spots ever and they've hunted it hard 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 for three or four days and all of a sudden the rut starts or you know what i mean like you can get into spots where the rut hasn't really started maybe it's just like getting close to the end or whatever it may be so like when you are out there and you find that good spot e-scouting you get into some spots where there's lots of sign that and you're not seeing them doesn't mean they're not there like there's sometimes they just the next day they're they're Mm -hmm. all over the place right so also they just turn on yeah, that patience, that, that thing that you said about patience, the thing that I lack of, we should uh, all learn how to just be, be more patient. Yeah. I lack it too. That's why I have to keep reminding myself. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks again for coming on, Nate. Um, and, uh, I mean, we kind of just did our, our final wrap-up there. So if anyone read the, the first – well, for those of you that did read the first uh, – blog post we're looking forward to the next two that you can have coming down the pipe about uh, moose hunting here awesome thanks guys really appreciate it yeah thanks Nate. all right guys if you've been listening to this podcast for long you know that iHunter has been a supporter of this podcast and us here at panoramic outdoors you also know that iHunter is one of our favorite tools that we have in our pack in our pocket actually every time we hit the field and uh not only is it in our pocket but it's literally everywhere we go with us because it's on our phone. And if you don't know what iHunter is, head over to iHunter.com or download the app on your phone. Um, iHunter is Canada's all-in-one hunting app, providing you with high-quality satellite imagery on your phone everywhere you go. Um, beyond that, they have instant messaging, so you can message your buddies, current weather forecasts, waypointing, tracking, public land maps, landowner maps, and everything you need in a mapping device. Throw the old GPS in the bin and uh, everything you need is literally on your phone with this app. If you're interested in getting some public land maps for a discount, head over to the website web.ihunterapp.com, type in the promo code PANORAMIC30 for 30% off your first public land purchase check them out now you won't regret it and there we have it that was nathan nate carruthers that's his name look him up on instagram like i've said a few times now in this podcast he's got some really cool pictures and and great photography so check him out on instagram i don't know if he's on facebook but you probably search him up on there chase what did you uh give me one sentence on uh maybe like a recap sentence or like what you got out of that little podcast episode um, I, I like how Nate really, two things, how he described his e-scouting tactics and put that together. And I, I also like how he formulated 
his plan on how to hit the different call-in spots throughout the day and uh and how he's going to do that and, and and execute that as well so um those are kind of my big takeaways i'm also interested in trying the uh the gutless method if i ever kill something bigger than a white-tailed deer so we'll try that maybe in right. the, sometime in the next 60 years hopefully <laughs> a little bit of time but yeah. don't take it for granted yeah okay then how about yourself um yeah I, I actually the e-scouting thing is is something that i haven't done much of so it's cool to to, to talk to somebody that does quite a bit of it and i know you do a lot of e-scouting too and i know i'm always picking your brain when it comes to eye hunter and everything else but yeah it's cool to uh to talk about those things um and the and the other part that i kind of like took taken away from just the entirety of it and i think i said it is that and you've said it is that you know we can do all these things and still be unsuccessful but when it comes to moose hunting like just getting out there and doing it and seeing sign or hearing one or you know whatever should be your success like when it comes to moose hunting in my mind get, harvesting an animal is like way above a successful hunt when it, moose hunting and you can get out there and do it and see stuff and you know i think that's the success right yeah there. definitely 100 percent, man and before we leave you here i just want to remind everybody that we're in marsh madness right now if you're looking for a place to pick up your bait and you're hitting lake winnipeg or the river whatever head over to harvester outdoors all the proceeds from their bait sales are going towards the children's hospital get your ass down there pick up some lures pick up an auger pick up some stuff that's on sale some uh they got some of the the uh, striker gear as well and uh, all the good stuff sean runs a, a good tight shop over there and uh yeah he'll hook you up with anything you need that's cool man that's super cool um and really good on them that's a cool thing that they're doing um and the other thing that i'll mention before we take off is check out our website um if you really like this podcast episode nathan like we've said a few times is doing a blog a blog uh, post or blog, write up, whatever you want to call it, on our website. You can check that out at www.panoramicoutdoors.com. While you're there, check out our store. We've got a lot of sweaters, T-shirts, hats, stickers, um, coffee cups, you name it, we have it. So if you're looking for a way to support us so we can uh, keep doing what we're doing, that's one way to do it. And if you want to do it the other way without spending any money, go to iTunes, Spotify, whatever you listen to your podcast on, and give us a rating. Give us a five-star rating and leave a comment and let us know what you think. Uh, make sure they're good comments because we love seeing them. And if, you know, if worse comes to worse, send us a DM on Instagram, Facebook, or send us an email and let us know what you think of the podcast. If you have any suggestions on what we can, uh, who we can have on, what we can do better, whatever it may be, or even if you have questions or, you know, even some information for us, uh, we'd love to love to hear from you and maybe we'll throw it on the air. Right on. Well, folks, thanks for listening. Um, how do you want to wrap this one up? Like old Ron Thompson. Easy does it, and that's the weather. Done.